Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Candor Convos, the podcast where Devin and I, Dominic, talk about the Bible. Well, generally, it started off not as a Bible podcast, but Devin and I are both interested in the Bible. So that's what we will be talking about for the next, um, who knows how many podcasts, but this is right now. We'll, we'll see. I, I have a feeling, you know, that this could be ongoing, you know, for quite some time. You know, I, I don't see it diminishing, you know. Right. Yeah. And you can always go deeper into the Bible, you know. There's, yep. You never run out of things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're in Leviticus right now. So we're at the beginning of the Bible. But... And there's a lot of things we don't understand at the beginning, but that's okay. We want to get through it all, if possible. We might skip around. But right now, we're in the second half of Leviticus. And I guess we can start with, well, the 20th chapter of Leviticus is about punishment for child sacrifice. And the Lord is just telling Moses all the punishments that the Israelites will be subjected to if they do not obey his commands. Um, did anything surprise you with this, Devin, or is this pretty much straightforward? It's pretty straightforward. I had just, like, one question. Like, who was, who was Moloch? Molech? Mm. Any Israelite... Or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech, Molech is to be put to death. So I just assume he's another god at the time that people were worshiping. And I bet Aaron, I bet Aaron was the one who started that one again. It's <laughs> Look, very I, awesome. I just I just put all the gold in the furnace. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I but this calf. I, I really don't know who Molech is. Um, mm-hmm. I, I assume he's another god that he, he was a rival god to the Lord. And so I apparently he was kind of a threat. So, um, yeah, so the Lord didn't like him. Yeah, the Lord was like, hey, they're all going to die. Yeah. One thing about Leviticus and just the early part of the Bible that I find interesting is that God is seems to be a God to just the Israelites. It doesn't it doesn't seem like he's a God to the rest of the people in the who are living at the time. He's just the God of the Israelites, the God of the Jews. And so like some people would say, well that's favoritism or that's wrong. But I mean, I see God as having a long-term plan, and he knew he had to do this kind of thing to ultimately bring about the salvation of of many more people once Jesus died for our sins. So, I don't know if I have a question about that. I just thought that was interesting because, you know, Nowadays, we wouldn't say that any person shouldn't worship God or that God wasn't 
existing for them. But back in the Old Testament, it was almost as if God was merely the God of the Israelites and not the God of a, a different country that was foreign to the Israelites. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I'm not too sure if I have anything to comment on with that because I'm not too sure myself. It does make sense. I haven't thought about that. And now that you say it, we only know the Israelites account. So it would it would totally make sense for us to think that way since we only know like it's taught, you know, at church and everything that God is the God for everyone and uh and whatnot, but you brought a good point. <laughs> I never thought of that. Well, I do believe God is the God for everyone, of course. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, I think at this time in human history, there was like a focus on the Israelites. Like they were God's chosen people. And then ultimately, God became the God of everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, after, I guess, after the first rapture, you know, or not really the rapture, because I guess you wouldn't call it that. But after the death of Jesus, you know, um, I'm guessing everybody was pretty much given that bridge to cross over to, you know? For sure. He died Up for over. everyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone and, since. Yeah, so I'm guessing it wouldn't be too far of a stretch to say that then. Right. And, um, yeah, so... Leviticus 20 is a lot of prohibitions against um, deviant sexual behavior, you might say, Um, bestiality, incest. And the fact that these prohibitions are given implies that they're probably taking place um, at least, you know, in some form or at least in a minimal kind of way. I have to admit, dude, like reading the book of Leviticus and uh, Exodus, the Israelites, man, they were, they were trifling, man. Like, (laughs) so (laughs) like, why do you have to make a rule? Like, why do you even have to verbally say you shouldn't marry your mother? (laughs) You shouldn't have, uh, sexual relations with an animal like why do you even have to s- you would think that that's something that's like g- genuinely understood yeah you, you would think so but maybe it's just our culture that we live in that has put such a taboo on these sorts of things and it's you all know, men it's all men doing the crazy stuff <laughs> yeah well that's most of it but um, verse 16 is actually if a woman approaches an animal to have sexual relations with it. Kill both the woman and the animal. <laughs> so, um, so if you're a man and have sex with an animal, you can live. But, oh, no, no, sorry. He, the man has to die too. So, you know, it's equal. That's good. Okay. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You would think you wouldn't have to have a law about this, but look, if I, I think that people were probably engaging in this kind of behavior and 
that's why God had to put a stop to it. I think we underestimate just how savage humans can be. Like you and I, we grew up in a certain kind of culture that, you know, we're, we're civilized compared mm-hmm. to some of our long-term ancestors. And yeah. so it seems ridiculous to us that these rules would even have to be given. But, you know, people were savages back in the day. People didn't care. People, they felt an urge to have sex, and it was just like, let me find the nearest thing that is going to satisfy this urge that I have. But you and I have been civilized to know that we can't act on every single desire we have. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, better ways to satisfy them. So, yeah, but that's an interesting point you bring up. I mean, it's not easy to understand why these rules had to be given. Yeah. And I think that's probably why the Bible seems so strict. It it seems so, uh, I guess, conservative. And that's because people back then were just just defiling everything. (laughs) Absolutely. That's how I think of it, because a lot of these rules or these rules, they seem harsh. And it seems like God is more harsh back then. But you have to realize the kind of people he was dealing with, you know, these aren't. (laughs) Your people in 2019 who live in a, you know, a civilized culture, or some of yeah. us. Yeah, seems like most of the uh, most of the people that these rules were addressing were just, just either like, just defiling everything that they touched, just doing like whatever they wanted to, or they were just just morons, just moronic people. So I, I think it was like either they were dumb, doing just stuff that like you know you shouldn't be doing, <laughs> or they were just like, yeah, I don't really care if this is bad or not. I'm going to do it anyway, and just like sexually and like spiritually, you know, just doing everything that, genuinely speaking, wouldn't make a good person. Yeah, I never want to say are that ancient humans were dumb because yeah I, that was bad i shouldn't have said that I'm no not. it's all right because it, it's the first instinct for a lot of people you know when they hear about the kinds of things that they did it's like oh they must have been idiots like who would do this but i mean i don't think it, it's it, it's about culture you know it, it's about you know not having been instilled with certain values and they, they were just starting to understand how one should behave. It's, it's not like you and I are any better than them because we happen nope. to be born <laughs> thousands of years later. And we have I the mean, benefit. We're still born into sin. So, nope, we are no better than anybody. Right. And we have the luxury of being able to learn from thousands yeah. of years of yeah. human misbehavior. And all their mistakes, we actually have a, a book that we can read. Right. They were the people in the book, so they didn't have <laughs> They didn't have that luxury. We got lucky. Right. So, but, but I see your point, absolutely. I, I had something I want to bring up about chapter 22. When I'm reading chapter 22 and, it's the, and God is, is requiring these certain kinds of sacrifices, I'm 
constantly thinking of Jesus and how this may be foreshadowing the sacrifice of Jesus. So let me see. Uh, verse 20, chapter 22, verse 20. Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. So this this requirement that a sacrifice had to be pure makes me think of Jesus and just the tradition that he was sinless and that's why he was a worthy sacrifice for our sins because he he had no blemish like the lambs that were or like the animals that were required to be sacrificed. Mhm. That's a good take on that because I totally see where you're coming from. And if we were to uh, reference anything back from like Exodus where you couldn't you couldn't just sacrifice anything. It had to be like specific things. There's a hierarchy. And I don't really know where uh, where lambs are, like where they hit in the hierarchy. But when people say like the lamb of God is, is like Jesus, I'm guessing lambs were like the top one. Mm-hmm. And just to think that everything had to be super pure with sacrificing a lamb. It had to be the firstborn. Uh, Male. Couldn't, yep. And it just all foreshadows like Jesus Christ. So. Exactly. Yeah, and I think the lambs had to be one years old, one year old um, for Passover, and that that is considered the prime year of a lamb, um, like uh, similar to how maybe the age thirty three could be seen as the prime year for a male, depending how you define prime. But yeah, if you if we could even like even if you were to go into. Uh... To people that into the culture of like hunting animals and things like that, goats and lambs, their prime years are one to two. Like a two year old lamb is like, you don't want to eat it. It's old, you mm. know, like it's considered like old, like anything over two or three years old, like you don't want to, like you don't even want to hunt it. You don't, cause it's like, well, you can hunt it, but like you don't want to eat it. It's going to taste bad. So I totally see where people were, uh, where like the one year old was like the prime because it's even the same way now. People just don't want it. Yeah, so if that, we don't want it. You know, God doesn't want it. <laughs> that's so interesting that you bring that up. Yeah, and it's like we these people could have sacrificed a two year old lamb to God, but it, it wouldn't have been a sacrifice for them because they wouldn't want it anyway. So by sacrificing a lamb in its prime, it's displaying to God that they you know, that they see him worthy for their, like, most, their best animals. Yeah. So, moving on to chapter 23, the Sabbath. Um, This is when God installs the Sabbath into the tradition of the Israelites. And it harkens back to Genesis because God rested on the seventh day, and now he's telling the Israelites you should you should rest on the seventh day is this i wonder if we don't observe this as much anymore i mean we people go to church on sundays for sure but it seems like people are a lot more strict with it back in the day you know 
mm-hmm. you can't work at all. And like we've society is kind of set up where a lot of people don't have to work on Sunday, but some people do. And I, I'm not sure if people, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I growing up, I never, Sunday was just another weekend day, to be honest. It's not like I, the only thing I really did differently was go to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we even had big meals on Sundays, like with the church afterwards. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that would be like, back then, that would be seen as working, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, I think now, from what I've studied and like listened to in church, people observe the Sabbath as a day of rest for for yourself like bringing recognition to the lord and saying like well he rested um you have to give thanks to to him and everything mm-hmm. but that the sabbath isn't meant to like literally be lazy or anything it's 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 a day of rest because the because you're supposed to be six days out of the week giving your all to like progressing God's uh, gospel and then right. like a day of rest for you because he knows you're a hard worker. Yeah. You're supposed to be exhausted. So yeah. Yeah. God, we should be like thanking him for allowing us a game, a day off. I know. So. Right. <laughs> I was like, I'll take a day <laughs> off, <laughs> please. I'm not in, I'm not like, cause if we were to, uh, to like dive deeper into this i'm pretty sure um my girlfriend uh rachel told me this before that seven was uh like significant in the bible because that's the number of completion Mm. and uh the seventh day would be like uh symbolic because it's like completing a cycle so Mm. it's like if you were to be spreading the gospel and everything like that for six days and then, you know, you get to the seventh, that's like the completion of that. So, like, your work is done, like one of those type of deals. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, that helps. Um, I want to talk about chapter 23, the Passover and the Festival of unleavened bread there's there's like a weird um focus on unleavened bread i have no idea i'm just gonna be out to tell you now because i don't even know what unleavened bread tastes like (laughs) yes well it makes me think of the eucharist to be honest because the eucharist is is like a sacrifice it's supposed. It's. I mean, in the Catholic tradition, it's. I was just gonna contains, say, could you uh, explain that to the listeners? Yeah, well, the Eucharist would contains the presence of Jesus Christ, and it actually, if you're a Catholic, it becomes Jesus's body through transubstantiation during the Mass, and but I see similarities between how Catholics view the Eucharist and how, and how, you know, the Israelites talked about unleavened bread because it was some, 
they really valued it as something that could be sacrificed. And during the Catholic Mass, it's kind of like a reenactment of Jesus' sacrifice. So I don't know if you've ever been to a Catholic Mass, but mm-hmm. they there's a reenactment of the Last Supper, you know, the priest acts in the place of Jesus and he and he goes through the Last Supper and then the the host becomes the body of Jesus and then it's you know kind of sacrificed to God. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It was just a connection that I I um felt. You know what I wanted I want to understand before but like before I, you know, die or whatever. Um, one of my goals is to actually like understand the purpose behind unleavened bread specifically. Like I would really like to know. And like I don't want to just look it up on Google, you know, because I'm going to find all kinds of stuff and I'm not going to and I'm still not going to find like a cohesive response. But I'd like to actually speak with uh, my pastor and figure this out you know for myself mm-hmm. figure out like what it means and like what's symbolic about it so i'm gonna have to put that on my to-do list but because i've always wondered what made unleavened bread so um different than well i know what makes it different because it's without the yeast in it but like why was there such an emphasis on not having yeast yeah i i wish i could answer that question i I hope you're able to talk to someone about that because I'm interested in in that too. Yeah, I'm not really sure why there's why that's so important. Mm-hmm. I I'm just remembering in Exodus the manna from heaven yeah. that was given was given to the Israelites in the desert and was that unleavened bread? Do you remember? I, um, I, maybe it didn't say. I know the manna is like technically like the grain, so I don't know what they made from it, but here I can see. I don't even really know how to spell manna, but I think it's uh, yikes. M A M A N N A. Oh, and just one more thing as you're looking that up. Um, I put a note here that Aaron and his sons eat the food sacrifice that the people bring. And it just made me think of the Catholic Mass because the priest eats the host. And uh, that makes sense. Along with the Catholics there, but um, first the priest eats it. So that's just interesting. Yeah, it doesn't say specifically what... um... Like, if manna was unleavened, was used to make unleavened bread. Um, it does say that they used it to bake and to boil, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure. That's okay. I want to talk about the popular passage in Eye for an Eye, or that, that entire section. So, it starts off, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life does that mean and i i assume it does mean that like if i were to kill your animal then you can kill my animal Mm -hmm. that that's what it means right yeah because um 
livestock and things like that were used so heavily with trade and with their um, daily lives that you, if you killed one, like that was like detrimental to your livelihood. Right, right. And yeah, and then fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Mm-hmm. Seems fair. You know what I what I noticed? This what? is a stark contrast to basically like everything that I'm taught that I was taught when I was younger in church were like you don't turn the other cheek. It's it's like you you uh accept that they did it, you forgive. Um you don't mm-hmm. like that that this is like old rules or whatever like and i and i don't really know why people take this one passage and stick to it and they're like well it says it in the bible like you can do it um and i know i know that i'm probably going to get a lot of flack for it but i'm not too sure which one is the right way to go about it like i would I I would like to believe that it's better to if somebody were to like do damage to you like take out your eye or something like don't go taking out their eye like it's not gonna like two negatives don't you know like doing that it's not gonna it's not gonna change anything that you still have a missing eye you know like I would like to say that it'd be better for you just to for, forget and forgive mm-hmm. and that's what I was taught in like Sunday school when I was younger, um, like when that's like the general gist and the message that is taught in some sermons that nobody really takes the eye for an eye thing as serious as it probably was back then, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and Jesus does say you, he does mention this. He says, you have heard it said eye for an eye tooth for a tooth, but I say, so, he yes, he does mention okay. um, this passage. It, it seems like Jesus is giving personal advice, like it, advice for how you should handle the situation or, you know, someone who is actually in that situation should handle it. And this is giving advice or this is this is just putting out a legal requirement. So yeah. it says... Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. It doesn't say, you know, if, if someone kills someone in your family, you should go kill someone in their family. It's not oh, giving, like, God. personal advice. This is, like, putting down, like, a legal, like, j- mm-hmm. just a law. That makes sense, yeah. Thanks for clarifying that for me, man. I never thought about that. You're welcome. I mean, I'm. that's probably not the best explanation but well yeah i get i get what you're saying though yeah even if it wasn't a good explanation i I got to man i i think maybe god's trying to make the israelites understand what fairness is and and, you know i i keep on saying like it's for these laws are for a particular people at a particular time so that's important to to remember yeah Um, the 25th chapter is about the Sabbath year. I, I underlined a couple things like, uh, verse 21. 
so he he tells the people that on the seventh year they can't harvest their crops or they can't plant or harvest crops and well that would seem impractical because what are they going to eat but then he says that in the sixth year the land's going to yield three times as much as it needs so i just found that interesting because god's saying that he's going to intervene and do something miraculous you know that somehow the field is going to field is going to um create three times the amount of crops that it generally would. I don't know. It's just like him kind of promising a miracle, which is a little different than what you might expect. Do you think that um, it was something along the lines of Moses or Aaron blessing the crops and then that would do it? Or that it was literally... The sixth year came, and then God just produced a lot, and Aaron and Moses didn't have to do anything. Like, what do you, what is, what do you think your opinion is? Hey, I would assume they wouldn't have to have done anything because I, I've just, this is all the information I have is that God said it's going to happen, and then it's going to happen. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to, he doesn't require. Um, Moses or Aaron to do anything as far as I know so I'm sure it's it'll just be done if he says it's will be done it will be done yeah I saw another another thing that was interesting and it was uh, chapter 25 verse 35 if one of your uh, do you want to read off of your version instead yeah. So, if, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger, so they can contribute, so they can continue to live among you. So, I have uh, a few questions about this verse. Was mm-hmm. it was it common for the Israelites to just support foreigners and strangers as if it was nothing like, like, Oh yeah, come on in. But they wouldn't want to help their friends and family. Like I'm trying to figure out why this had to be spoken. And and in the context, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it had to be like, as it says, like, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so that they can continue to live among you. Like don't just leave your neighbor out to die. So why would I'm just, man, like I'm just trying, I'm trying not to think negatively on uh, the Israelites, but if they were just, they were just leaving their neighbors, their friends out to out in the dust, you know, and just taking up strangers foreigners like it was nothing it's it's interesting to see the dynamic between the israelites like it seems like they were all out to get each other like they're like nope i'm not helping you out nope i'm not not trying you Mm. know to bring you along with me it was like it it Mm. was just it it just seems way different than what i would expect you know yeah that's a good catch because this this line does give us some insight in into how the Israelites probably acted among themselves. So yeah, that's a good observation. Because yeah, I I agree with you. When I read this, I was like, wait, wouldn't they wouldn't the general person treat a foreigner or a stranger worse? 
But yeah. I guess I guess sometimes, you know, I mean, I've experienced this with my own family. It's like sometimes it's easier to be nicer to someone who you're not living with. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I kind of understand um, how this could make sense. You know, maybe the Israelites, yeah, we're, they're probably fighting among each other. They probably saw saw each other as rivals, and whenever a foreigner would come among them, they found it a lot easier to treat them hospitably. And then to take this even further, like even in 39, they were for real using them as slaves. Like it just seems so, right. so out of the ordinary at the time or not even at the time, like just to, just to think that the chosen people of God were just, you would think that if you compared them to now, they were just way worse and, you know, and it just gives you a good look, like at at the situation, and knowing that, well, if these people could be God's chosen people, I know I am too. You know, I was like, I, I'm not trying to like compare, but you, I, I can't help but compare my life to that, and and it just seems like wow. Yeah, I, I think it's as hard as it is. I think it's important to try to. to try to not compare ourselves to them because yeah. i mean it's just like i'm a, trying not to it's just yeah i you can't help it but to to think about it and the only way that you can yeah. see about how different it is is to simply compare and that's what it's just it's just mind-boggling yeah this, you know it's like a history book as bad as the israelites were or, or how they seem they're i mean i assume they're probably the best group of people on the planet at the time having been instructed by the god by god yeah yeah imagine how the, the babylonians the were you know <laughs> right right exactly. or imagine just imagine how the egyptians were at that time you know <laughs> they were really out there yeah well we already know how pharaoh was and yeah he was like nah <laughs> he doesn't have him. he was like nah right so yeah, well, we could even take that for like even the Romans. Romans were just, ugh. oh yeah, they were brutal. Yeah, brutal. They were just all over paganism, and the Greeks were, and mm-hmm. yeah. You know what? You know what I find very interesting. Just a connect, like a random connection here. What? So, the Bible was translated from Hebrew to uh, Greek, right? And from Greek onward to other languages, correct? I believe so. Isn't yeah. it just, isn't it so odd? Or not odd, but like, it's so, it's so like different to, or not, it's a different way to look at it to think that the Greeks were so like it. They were just way, way out of the box when it came to, uh, at the time, like, with, like, defilement and, and, like, the Romans were. And, like, they were all, like, they weren't, they weren't looking too good if we look at them now, like, in our eyes. But just to think that the only way that we would have been able to read the Bible is if they translated it. Mm-hmm. Isn't mm-hmm. that just... Isn't that crazy to think that like some like a group of people that were just just all over the place are the only way that we can read? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, think about the crazy people that 
you know, if they wouldn't have existed, then we wouldn't have existed. I mean, I'm yeah. sure if any of <laughs> us went far, far, far enough down the line of our ancestral tree, we'd find a maniac or somebody that we, we, we would mm-hmm. consider a maniac. So that, I mean, yeah. that's an interesting point, but I, I see your point definitely. So, okay. Well, I think, I mean, we're pretty much, we pretty much covered like the main points of Leviticus. I mean, to the best of our ability, I'm sure there's a lot of great meanings in this text that you and I have not uncovered, but do you have any closing words about it? Um, I don't really have any closing words. I, I, I'd like to say that, uh, Leviticus is a great book to just to learn about history in general, that by looking at these rules that were in place, you know how the people were at the time. And I think it's very important as people go forward and reading the Bible that they have an understanding of the old Testament, like the, the context, the, like to have a good support system and a good foundation going forward because if you don't know how the people were you don't know like if you don't read leviticus if you don't read deuteronomy if you don't read exodus especially or even genesis you're not going to really have a good foundation to read the rest of the old testament because everything's built off of those like chronologically speaking but also all the rules and everything that's said all the uh instances everything that's comes after that if you don't understand the history behind it you're not going to get a good representation of the book so that you're reading at the time so it's this is a good it's a good it's a good read everybody (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and the one thing another another thing that it does when you realize maybe how savage some ancient people were makes you feel awe for how far we've come and just you know it it helps you believe that yeah there is a god that's leading humanity in the right direction and i mean as much as we may look at the modern world and see all forms of depravity in it we can know that you know we aren't doing some things at a level that people were doing back then that we would consider appalling you know at least we've evolved morally in a lot of ways even though we may have devolved morally in some other ways and that's a topic that we could talk about in the future like in what ways have we progressed what in what ways have we regressed but yeah so that's just that's just what i thought about when i was reading about these israelites i like that (laughs) all right then i think we should close with that then all right thanks for sticking around everybody yeah if you if you're still here we really appreciate it and we hope you join us on the next episode so yeah peace out everyone peace oh wait i don't know how to close (laughs) 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 all right peace